I'm Kay Firth Butterfield at the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Welcome back to another edition of In AI We Trust. Today we are thrilled to be joined by Athena Kaniora, Executive Vice President, Chief Strategy and Transformation Officer at PepsiCo. In this role, Athena oversees PepsiCo's end-to-end strategy and key markets and oversees data products, platforms, and talent. Prior to joining PepsiCo, Athena was the Chief Analytics Officer and Global Head of Applied Intelligence at Accenture, where she specialized in applying AI and analytics. She's a member of the Royal Statistical and Economic Society, where she contributes to shaping government policy and how data is used by bodies like the IMF. She sits on the board of the Institute of Marketing Sciences and is an educator who has held lectureships across the globe, including at the University of Sheffield, where she also earned her PhD in econometrics and quantitative economics. Athena, we are thrilled to have you here. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Miriam. It's always a pleasure to be with you and to come back. This is episode number two and excited to share the PepsiCo story. Well, we are thrilled to learn more about it. You've been busy. There's been a lot going on. It's to think about what has changed in the world, let alone your world, since we spoke last spring, almost a year ago. Let's just start with that. The whole world's perspective on AI has changed since we last spoke. I know there has been so much underway in your work at PepsiCo. What have been some of the biggest, most impactful changes at PepsiCo since we last spoke? Well, firstly, in the middle of our industrialization journey. So for many of our global AI capabilities, we had started rolling them out in pretty much every major geography, everything from smart manufacturing to how we engage with our consumers, rethinking of our supply chains and our logistics. So AI was becoming pervasive in every part of the operation of the company. Plus, of course, we have had the major upskilling and reskilling as an organization. Now, what has changed is probably the focus and the attention of the external world on AI, specifically after the explosion of Gen AI. As PepsiCo, we were one of the few companies that were doing things and we were talking about it in the context of responsibility and ethical usage and practical applications for our employees, but not many other companies were thinking of AI that seriously in all the aspects of value chain. I think after the Gen AI explosion, the world has truly changed. And as such, the expectation also of our employees around the use of technology has changed a bit. Uh, So what do I mean by that? uh, In the past, it was a push and a pull. Mm -hmm. right? So we said, okay, this is what we believe we should be doing as a company. Let's educate you about the benefits. Let's work on a couple of pilot markets to test out the waters and then let's scale across the board. Now, more and more, we have our employees saying, oh, by the way, I want to test Gen AI for creative campaign design. Oh, I want to test Gen AI for new product development. Oh, I want to test Gen AI for better employee engagement. So there is a huge pool Why? Because they now understand more the benefits of technology. Because of that, I'm very excited because now everyone in the organization wants to be involved. The tricky part is how do we do it responsibly by using, again, the framework that we have established and educating everyone both about the opportunities, but also the risks. Well, that is why it is so much fun to have this conversation with you always, Athena. You have such a 
broad vantage point into what's happening in the world, in the world of AI. And the other fun part is when we say PepsiCo, most people don't immediately think AI. And yet the ways you've already listed of the exciting ways that even your employees are wanting to do it, let alone what you have in store for them. So I'm wondering for one moment, let, let's look ahead. I think the exciting and challenging part of your job must be that you're almost expected to have a crystal ball and understand how the world will be transformed so that you can plan your huge enterprise accordingly. What do you think will be the most impactful ways that AI will change how PepsiCo does business in the future? I have the advantage of my role not being the T, the transformation, but also the S, the strategy. And as part of my responsibility is to rethink of what is the strategy of the organization, not just in the next year, but also the next three years, five years, and eventually 10 years. Because as a company, what the board and our chairman aspires to is to perform to potential. So what is the potential of PepsiCo and how are we able to achieve that? And based on the analysis that we have done in the past, uh, I would say six to nine months, we cannot reach the potential without embracing and harnessing the potential of the technology that comes with that. And uh, not just around AI, but also blockchain and next-gen automation, the robotics and uh, metaverse. So every new technology that touches the ecosystem of PepsiCo, it is imperative that we embrace, we make it our own, we use it in our processes. Otherwise, we will not reach the potential that we have as an organization. And that translates in a couple of activities and actions that we have decided to take as a company. One is, um, what are the future job families that will make this company even better, even faster, even stronger as we rethink the business model of PepsiCo? We believe that there is a very near future where we will not have those functional silos anymore. So the role of finance will not be the role of finance. The role of HR will not be the role of HR. The role of sales will not be the same role of sales. But there will be a much more integrated backbone of the organization that will drive decisions coming out of those platforms that we are embedding. That's directly the consumer. That's directly our customers. And that's our employees without thinking HR first or finance first or sales first. So it's much more outcome driven. So we are designing a company starting with the outcome that we want to have, the mission that we want to achieve, the vision that we have when it comes to the financial performance, and then breaking down the silos of the functional space that typically every corporation has to abide to operate. So one is rethinking the operating model of the company. Mm -hmm. The second big component is rethinking of the employee DNA. So if we were to think of what is the current employee DNA of a company that is in the manufacturing space, you have this division between frontline workers and knowledge workers. In the next two years, again, because of this explosion of technology and how we are thinking, everyone will be a knowledge worker. Everyone will now hold the power of AI applications and insights and data generated output and will be able to take decisions without having necessarily a need to be a data scientist or a business analyst or a data management expert. So the democratization of the knowledge allows someone who before was maybe a warehouse manager now to be an insights manager. 
before was a marketeer, now to be a consumer insights lead. So we are changing now the DNA of the employee base of the organization. And that will trigger different behaviors, much better productivity, operational excellence, proximity to the consumers, and different and agile ways of working, real-time activation of all the journeys that we are putting internally for our operations, but also externally for our consumers and our customers, and therefore make this company, I would say, a digital-first and AI-first company. And the last thing is around the culture of the organization. We are a company that rewards, and rightly so, entrepreneurial spirit, heroic behaviors, a competitive spirit, and doesn't reward as much adoption, common ways of working, standardization, right? So we are now rethinking what should be the culture of the organization that allows you to thrive through creation, but also allows you to adopt and harness what someone else has built for you. And therefore, our modus operandi will be global to local. We want to empower the market by building things one way. We want to empower the user by giving them the platforms to create, but not them building the platforms. So it's also rethinking of the ways of working, creating a global culture, but with a very local flavor. Wow. There's a lot to unpack there. I can only imagine how interesting, exciting, challenging these questions are on your plate on a daily basis. Breaking silos. This is a theme I think we all need to be thinking about in general when we're talking about AI. It's going to make us rethink all of our institutions and infrastructure. And you're so far ahead by taking the company in that direction. But the other thing I think that is so unique from your point of view that I would love to learn from and hear about is there's one thing to talk about our point of view and our enthusiasm and our understanding about how people can benefit from AI, from these technological advances, new jobs, the health opportunities, the efficiencies, the accommodations. But then there's the reality of how people feel about it. You know, you're talking about culture, and I'm sure part of the culture is the frontline workers, the small mom and pop shops that you work with, those in agriculture. And I bet you get a great sense of what the front lines of your employees and, and the extended partners are feeling. What are you getting as the general sense of those who you work with, the front lines, and their feeling about how AI is going to impact their lives? And I'll start with probably our partners. As you said, is the mamas and papa shops, the small traditional trade businesses, where in their minds they want simplicity of both execution and collaboration. So what do I mean by that? Currently, the operating model that we have with them is, you know, you have the business development manager, you have the sales manager, they go there, they take the order, they engage with them, they look at the portfolio, and then they decide collectively what should be the right product mix that should be in display on the store. That takes time, right? And it's not necessarily very accurate. So what we have been doing in the past three years and more so in the last years, we have been trying to create what we call the perfect order. So instead of us going to the store, why not give to the store owner the ability through the application to have a baseline order that we call the perfect order, which that order reflects personalized needs, personalized promotions, the portfolio choices that he or she wants with gamification, with loyalty rewards, opportunities, the ability to collect and redeem 
and not just within our platform, but also other platforms, but then also the opportunity for him or her to customize the order. I think the typical issue that you will find is that many of them will say, yeah, but the order is not exactly what I want and oh, Pepsi or anyone else, you're trying to lock me into the order to buy more. Say no, we'll give you the perfect order that we believe is best suited for you, but you can always go and change it. So this is where we give now the power to the store owner. And that unleashes a lot of opportunities for the salesperson actually to do business development, to educate the traditional uh, trade owner on the portfolio, on the innovation, on uh, the engagement with the consumer. So not worry about the sales, but develop further the store because those stores are the bloodline of the country. And they are not the big retail stores. They are the people that you know, have five, maybe 10 employees, that it's family businesses. And we want to ensure that those family businesses are a sustainable business model for them and therefore make it easy and economically viable for them to continue ordering from PepsiCo. That's how we are rethinking the traditional trade. Now, if you were to think then of the ecosystem of PepsiCo, you also have our farmers. We have big agro-operations. And we don't just work with the big farming families. We also work with the small and medium-sized farming communities who they have a couple of acres in different parts of the country who live from growing the potatoes, who live from growing the wheat and the corn. So those ones cannot afford AI platforms or AI applications. So for those ones, we are giving them access to our infrastructure to our technology, free of charge, to all the different systems we have created around yield optimization, pesticide prevention. It's on regenerative training, on regenerative practices, farming practices, drone technology to monitor weather conditions. So we feel we do have a responsibility because these are families that have been with us for generations. We have farmers that are third and fourth generation farmers that have been working with us. But again, those technologies are still very expensive. So as PepsiCo, we provide them the platform so they can use. So then they can work with us harmoniously to be able then to pivot to more regenerative agriculture practices. And lastly, you have the employees. And the employees are also consumers. So the one thing we have been trying to do with our employees is, besides the obvious, let's upskill you and reskill you to do a better job internally, but also let's upskill you and reskill you to be able to harness this technology outside the organization as well. As you're trying to think, okay, what should be your next move as an individual, how you can contribute back to the economy where you are operating, how you can be an ambassador for the community, that you work with. So a lot of those uh, people are now becoming digital ambassadors for the company in their local communities. And they give back to the local communities through different activities that we do, whether it's our PepsiCo Foundation or other programs that we have within the organization. Fascinating. I mean, you're running an entire country's worth of populations and digitalizing them and helping them benefit. What's been their sentiment? Is it when you're first talking to your employees, when you're first explaining to the mom and pop shops, even that you're generously offering the platform in the agricultural setting, what's been the initial reaction? Has it changed over time? You know, now that you're a little further into the program, what are you seeing in terms of their response? There's always an initial hesitation. They think, even though they might not say it, there must be an ulterior motive mm -hmm. for PepsiCo. You know, what do you really want? Mm -hmm. I mean, is it that you want to have access to our data? Do you want to have more access to 
some of them say to our crop, is this about kind of securing the crop? Some of them is like, do you want exclusivity when it comes to your products? And that is typically the first reaction. Yes, but yes, why? And you see after the probably second conversation, pivots to, okay, now I understand it's about common success. Now I understand it's about common KPIs. So we link our success to their success. Because if they don't sell, we don't also sell to them, right? I mean, so if they don't produce, we also don't have products available for the consumers. So as long as you make them understand that the value chain is so integrated that we are talking about a circular economy, that everyone depends on each other. And even though we might be the big global PepsiCo, we have very localized supply chains. We have employees that live in you know, small regions and small communities, that people don't want to work for big corporations that have zero identity, that people take decisions, even when it comes to buying our products, that relate to what we are giving back to the society that they work and live in. This is where the trigger comes and happens and they say, okay, I'm all in. It's always a journey. You know, in some cases it has taken us a year. to convince them that it is the right approach. And some other cases, they've had to see from someone else who did it and them getting convinced. And in some other places, I mean, some of them, you know, opted out. So they might come later in the journey. So it's not like everything has started from the very beginning with 100% success. No, there's a lot of education, a lot of change management, a lot of training, a lot of sharing that you have to do. And you cannot stop the continuous change management journey that we have embarked on with any of those stakeholders. But what is important for us in terms of the success criteria of this engagement is our suppliers are our partners. If we think of our suppliers being just at the lower part of the value chain, then we have failed. So we look at both our customers, either retailers and our suppliers in exactly the same way. Whether you are a Walmart or you are a small farm in Oklahoma, we treat you exactly the same way. So we give you the same level of transparency. We give you the attention that you need, depending on the scope that you have to do. And we give you an equal opportunity in terms of the value chain. And that's why at the core of what PepsiCo is, it's an agro business. If our farmers are not successful, the company will not be successful. Once again, a lot to unpack. I think we're going to need to have many more follow-on episodes to really do justice to all that we can learn from you. Digging in a little bit on what you were talking about, you know, one of the key constituencies you mentioned were your employees. And I think it's really interesting. You call them your digital ambassadors. You're not just educating them. You're really empowering them. And it sounds like to some extent, for the most part, they are then really embracing it. So can you tell us a little bit more about the investment you're doing with the workforce? I know that there has been some real upskilling efforts underway. I know you started that some time ago. Can you remind our listeners where you are in your journey to upskill your employees, why you've made that investment and what that looks like today? Wonderful. This is the third year of our Digital Academy. Digital Academy is an enterprise-wide initiative where we have been training, upskilling, reskilling all the employees of PepsiCo across different technology spaces and themes that were very important for them and are still very relevant for them to be doing their job more effectively and at the end of the day makes them happier in the workforce. And these are technologies like data and AI and analytics and blockchain and cloud, etc., etc., 
And uh, now we have entered the second phase of the program. So everyone has been through the mandatory training, has the foundation of every basic technology in the respective areas. They have done the deep dives and now they are going into what we call personalized learning paths. So over and above of what you need to do your job more effectively, what is of interest to you? So if you were to see your future in a different domain, okay, how can we allow you to go there? So now we are taking this to the next level also to align with the aspirations and the ambitions of our employees as they think of their future within the organization. So that's one element of the Digital Academy. A subset of that community is what we call Digital Ambassadors. Now, Digital Ambassadors is a program that we rotate every year. So this is now in the third year of the operation. It's uh, global by nature, so we have representation of pretty much all the geographies that we operate. It's multifunctional by nature. You might have HR professionals, technology professionals, sales professionals, marketing, and these are change agents. So they are mid-level in their careers, so they're not part of the executive team, but they're all not also junior analysts. They play critical role in the respective domains when it comes to unlocking either value or unlocking processes or driving decisions. And they are in this inflection point where they can influence very strongly the base of the company, but also they are being heard by the executive team. And they were nominated by both the direct reports plus also their managers. So we've tried to do kind of a consolidation of all the nominations and they are being given assignments and projects within a year. So we allow them one day per week to work on something different from what they are doing, which is typically projects outside of their core expertise. So, for example, we have had HR professionals who are working on rethink the future of finance and planning. How would you do that from a people lens? put aside the financial lens. And those have been critical as change agents within their markets because they have been advocates of change. They have been working in the change management aspect because they live in the local geography. People trust them. It's not all this big bad wolf in corporate in purchase that is telling them to do things. These are the people that they sit next to them that are saying, okay, is the right thing for you? It is important. It has been so successful. Now we are in the third year of implementation. And I don't see this stopping. I mean, we have nominations coming in every six months and we want to ensure that we rotate the talent because we have so many people wanted to be part of the program. So I would say these are the two big initiatives that we are doing, one for the full company and one specifically for change management and adoption. Fascinating. Clearly, we need to be learning a lot more about what you've done there. And it sounds like people can, because I know that you've done a report recently with the Aspen Institute. So would you mind telling us a little bit more about why this collaboration? What was your case study? What would be the executive summary that we can learn from? And what are some of the key takeaways for you? What we wanted to do with Aspen is focus in the manufacturing industry, because this is an industry that in people's mind is left behind from the developments of AI, but it is the heartland of the U.S. I mean, this is where historically those jobs have been challenged by extreme outsourcing, but also where there was this notion that it's very hard to upskill and reskill those people, partly because a segment of this population wasn't educated, partly because a segment of this population was doing the same jobs for a very long period, and therefore it was at least per perception, it was very hard for them to be upskilled. So 
what we want to do with Aspen is break this paradigm. This is not true, uh, number one, uh, because as I said, we are one of the biggest manufacturing companies in the world, let alone in the US, where, I mean, we are at the top three. The majority of the 110,000 people that we have in the US is what we call frontline. And uh, an average tenure of a person in a position like warehouse or manufacturing is 15, 20 years. So people that grew up in the organization and with various college degrees, educational levels, et cetera, et cetera. So one thing that we wanted to do with Aspen is prove that there is a different way of doing things. And through upskilling, reskilling is giving those people a very different opportunity now to do their job much more effectively, efficiently, and with ease of execution. So what Aspen did is went and interviewed stakeholders, went and visited facilities, talked to the people on how now they are doing their job differently after the adoption of those technologies, how they feel much more secure about their future in the organization because they don't feel left behind from the latest technology advancements and development, how automation is not going to make every job disappear, or AI will not create a company of two gears. So they went and did these extensive interviews to get the sentiment of the people. And these were three major job families, people in the plants, people in the warehouses, and people in our fleets. And on top of that, they actually showed the applications, how people are using that, and what were the programs that we implemented. So one is we wanted to provide to the industry, to the manufacturing industry, visibility. How we have done it, what has been the process and the journey so other people can learn. The second, which we felt it was a big responsibility for PepsiCo, is how some of more the tier two and tier three manufacturing companies can use PepsiCo as a platform. So we've said through providing this level of visibility, we are more than happy to share some of our assets, some of our infrastructure. So for smaller manufacturing companies that maybe they don't have the budget, or the technical expertise, or even the HR expertise, they can leverage what we have built and use it for their bases. So an opportunity to bring the industry along and not just the big manufacturing players. And lastly, we see that as a big competitive advantage of the US economy, where something that can truly uplift the economy through bringing the whole manufacturing association to a very different level of expertise with a much more self-sustainable model of both the employee base and the assets that come with that. Because we do believe that the days where you have had global supply chains are long gone. The days where you had free trade of assets and parts are long gone. So we have to ensure that the U.S. manufacturing ecosystem is super strong. So that was the third reason why we wanted through the survey for people to understand that this is not just about the success of PepsiCo. This is also about the success of the country. So these were the three main reasons. And we encourage everyone to read the white paper and PepsiCo. We want to help our peers and every part of the manufacturing value chain to be successful. Well, I'm sure everyone who heard your program today, everyone who's hearing you on the podcast will want to read that and learn more from your clearly deep insights and experience, the exciting work that you're doing that so many people are talking about, and you're actually figuring out the path forward. You're just in there and innovating and bringing everyone along with you. So it's really exciting to come along on your journey. 
It's also interesting the work that you're doing with policymakers to make sure that they're coming along on their journey. And I know that you were recently at Davos. I know that you spoke with the CBC leadership at the leadership conference and today at the State of the Net conference. Can you share with us, what is your basic message to policymakers? I know it must be for you as an innovator, something you're constantly thinking about in terms of the balance between innovation and the guardrails. Are there guardrails you need that would make your work easier, clearer, more effective? And what specifically would you ask government to be doing for you? Now with the current landscape around regulation, the industry, industry, not the tech industry, I mean, enterprises like us have to self-regulate. I have set my own responsible AI framework. I have linked that with my responsible business framework. We have put that as part of our enterprise risk committee. And we have had to educate the board that now we will have two reviews a year on AI. And these are the areas that we have to assess. And I'm giving that as an example, because this is something that we as PepsiCo are doing, but it's not necessarily the standard that every corporation is doing. Right? So one is, okay, what are the standards we need to set in terms of tracking those technologies, auditing those technologies, and make sure that they become a theme, not just in the smaller rooms, but also in the boards, right? And that is something that the government can provide guidelines. So that's one space for others to do that as well. The second is if you were to think of AI systems, the biggest problem of AI systems is transparency and making sure that you are able to track bias across the system, whether it's on the algorithm or on the actual usage of the application and trace that back to the data. So how do you link data bias, algorithmic bias, and ethical usage of those models across the value chain? It's something that's probably besides the you with the latest stack that they are thinking about that no one has cracked the code. So, of course, the new guidelines that uh, the administration has provided is a very good first step, but there is more to be done. And I would say, lastly, probably the most important is privacy and data. We have been saying for many years, you know, the time needs to come, especially in the U.S., that we have the equivalent of GDPR. How do we protect consumers? How do we ensure data privacy becomes part of how businesses are operating? And not just because they might be having a cyber attack, but because it's the right thing to do for the consumers. Again, every corporation has been setting their own consumer data privacy standards. And then, of course, you have differences state by state. So this is the one area that if you were to say we all want to embrace and maximize the usage of AI and the promise of AI, you need to have solved the issue of data privacy. Otherwise, any output of AI will not be a trusted output. Be a bigger gap between the people that create the systems and the people that use their systems. And there will be a huge manipulation of those systems from specific segments of the population. So our ask is finally there has to be something on data privacy from the federal government. I won't ask you the probability that you think you'll get what you're asking for. It's... <laughs> no, that's not <laughs> Okay, I won't ask that. That's my wish list. That's a great wish list. And I hope they are listening in all the different fora where you've been having this conversation. So you mentioned a little bit about what you're doing in the absence of federal regulations. You are a leader in responsible AI. Another change that we've been grateful for and very excited about at Equal AI is that you've become a member of Equal AI. You've been a frequent participant in our badge program. 
Can you just share for others who are trying to understand why would Pepsi want to be a leader in responsible AI? What does that mean to be a responsible AI leader? Can you break down for people what that looks like, how you came to that decision that this is an area where you wanted to lead and as a consumer, as a member of society, how they would be able to know if you or another company was actually a responsible AI leader? Yeah, wonderful. And I want to start by explaining when we say responsible AI, what do we mean? We don't just mean a process or a framework. Everyone can have a process and a framework. We are talking about an actual mechanism where we track our data pipelines, our AI pipelines, the use of our algorithmic library, which product attaches a consumer versus a customer versus an employee, and trace that back to ensure that either we don't have bias when it comes to the information that flows from the system, we don't have bias when it comes to the algorithms that are being attached to the product, or the recommendation itself, which is the output of the product, doesn't compromise our principles as an organization, right? Our values and our ethics. So there is this mechanism that we have built both in terms of traceability and breaking down the components of the value chain. And value chain, I'm talking now about the technical value chain of everything that we have uh, built as an organization. So on top of that, which is not something that many people would opt for, but I have, is we have told our control organization The same way you audit the financials of this company, I want you also to audit our systems. So go through and audit every part of the mechanism on how we deliver, develop, and drive those capabilities. So it is part now of the control processes of this organization because I want to be able to report back that we are doing things and not just in a way that no one can understand. So I'm the only one who can audit myself but in a way that the organization, the company can audit me and what I'm building. So that's the second big component. And the third element as part of the responsible AI framework that we have put is we have made very public. So when NIST had the RFP, we shared that responsible AI framework. So in the bodies that are thinking about responsible AI, we have shared in full transparency what we have been building and also with our technology partners as well. So because we want them to evolve their thinking per the standards also that we are setting for ourselves and our consumers. Lastly, I want to tell you that the one thing that our consumers have told us again and again and again is, although I want to engage with you, I want to have the right to be forgotten as well. So the one thing that we are very laser focused is as we engage, especially with our consumers, we forget who the consumers are. So the information just flows when it comes to sending them the product recommendation and you will not find any trace back of that consumer to any of our systems, which for us is also super important because we are in every household in the US and we touch every single person in this country. So the last thing we want is our consumers to feel that we are intruding. We know what they are doing. We know what preferences they want outside the portfolio that they want to engage. So the choice that we are giving them to be forgotten is part of the responsible AI frame. 
Well, I think you've given us a few new ways to think about leadership and responsible AI. Choosing to be audited is not something you hear most executives or industries ask for, particularly when it comes to AI and so much innovation and so many unknowns as we explore this together and allowing consumers to have this power to be forgotten. So many interesting things for us to continue to digest and think through and learn from you. Well, I hate for this conversation to, to come to an end, but I know we have to give you your time back. So the question we always end with is asking our guests, uh, what's the AI innovation that's most exciting to you of all the different things currently that you are playing with or you see coming down the horizon? What's the AI system or technology that you're most excited about? Maybe I start with the use case and then I go to the systems. You know, as we are thinking of you know, future world and the whole space of nutrition and wellness and food systems. The one thing that we haven't cracked yet as a society is waste. There's so much food waste out there. And we are a very big foods company, right? And even as with our other CPG partners, we haven't solved that problem yet. I mean, how can we minimize food waste in the value chain? I mean, everything from the crops to the product that we provide to even the consumer that consumes that product, there is waste in the value chain. So for me, and that's why I said kind of when you connect the data, you can connect the value chain and therefore you can eliminate all those areas where you don't optimize the process. That for me is the biggest unlock that AI can help the societies is elimination of the food waste. We will have a serious food problem as a society. You see that already in the world. And we have to be able to tackle it in the most efficient way. Otherwise, there's nothing left for our grandchildren, eh? not just our great-grandchildren, but our grandchildren. So that's one. Now, in terms of AI systems, and uh, I think many people have said it in the past, not so much anymore. I am very hopeful that maybe in the next 10, 15 years, we will be able to crack the code on quantum computing, especially with the latest advancements in supercomputing, because that will unleash unlimited resources for us when it comes to optimization. Gen AI is great because it minimizes manual tasks, but inherently it's a productivity play, right? Uh, at the end of the day, we were to find a way to optimize the world. I mentioned one example, and that is, you know, maybe the future of quantum or technologies like that. I think we will have unlimited opportunities and maybe also from an energy perspective, and the usage and climate. So that for me is one technology I'm still watching out, although I think many people have forgotten about it in the light of Gen AI. What should be the next advancements of uh, quantum? Athena, you've given us so much to learn from, to unpack, to digest from your upskilling to your empowering the mom and pop shops, the sustainability you're doing with all the agriculture and the farmers that you're working with and the farms that you're supporting to having us look ahead to reducing food waste and the benefits of quantum. So thank you for this very inspiring conversation. And we look forward to having another one and tracking these encouraging developments. Oh, thank you so much, Miriam. I'm happy to be back again. Yes. <laughs> Subscribe to or download our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. 
To learn more or get involved, visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible. 